This is the coolest show brought to you by Hip Hop Caucuses. Think 100%. It's the coolest show you know. Keep the culture connected. It's the coolest show you know. In your ear, yeah, respect the expert level information, entertainment, education. Rev here, we got you covered as you hit your destination. Climate rules everything around me. Cream. For those who lost focus, close your eyes and just dream. Open your third eye, now the world is your off. Coolest, coolest show you know. It's the Hip Hop Caucus. There are times when we have to have certain conversations. This is one of those times when we have to have conversations literally about our litigation process. And like it or not, we are in a political moment, and this special conversation interrupts our previously scheduled program to connect climate to politics and affect whether we win or lose. Today's guests are some of the most respected thinkers on issues from justice, human health, indigenous rights, legal, and reproductive health. So I'm very excited to have them with us today because this is a critical time in our conversation. So as we get started, first, without further ado, let me introduce, uh, first up, Sheila Foster, Sheila R. Foster is the Scott K. Kinsberg Professor of Urban Law and Policy at Georgetown University. She holds a joint appointment with the Georgetown Law School and the McCourt Public Policy School. Professor Foster is well known for her articles and books on environmental justice, including From the Ground Up, Environmental Racism and the Rise of the Environmental Justice Movement with Luke Cole and the Law of Environmental Justice with Michael Gerard. She also co-directs LabGov, an international applied research project that has pioneered a new model of urban governance and a path toward more equitable management of a city's infrastructure and services. And also with us and on this roundtable conversation, um, we also have with, with us um, Bria Johnson. Bria Johnson is a cultural worker, writer, organizer. Her work looks at reproductive justice, black health, abolition, care ethics, and black feminism. She has over five years of experience creating curriculum, facilitating, and organizing. And finally, we have Gerald Torres, another hero in the pantheon. Uh, of environmental law. Gerald Torres has spent his career examining the intrinsic connections between the environment, agriculture, and food systems, and social justice. His research into how race and ethnicity impact environmental policy has been influential in the emergence and evolution of the field of environmental justice. His work also includes the study of conflicts over resource management between Native American tribes, states, and the mm -hmm. federal government. Well, to all of you, how are you doing? Well, I'm doing, I'm doing fine, except it's too uh, hot. Uh, you know, we could bring that <laughs> up and talk about why that might be. But, uh, <laughs> and Bria, I don't think we've met, uh, but I'm really happy to meet you this way. And, and, and Sheila, you know, I've been one of Sheila's biggest fans from like the beginning. And Luke was a dear, dear friend of mine as well. So uh, 
it's great to see you. And it's great to see you. Gerald is a giant <laughs> in my field, <laughs> uh, still is. And uh, we've both been in this struggle for environmental and now climate justice for at least two decades, probably more. Yeah, and I think I think you know it's important to, for 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 us to emphasize right at the outset that climate justice is environmental justice. Mm. Absolutely, uh, and, and it's impossible to it's impossible really to pull those apart. Well, we're gonna we're gonna. We're going to get to that. No, go ahead, Bria. What are you going to say? I was going to say it's so nice to be here with you both. And just to add on to that, there's no way to talk about reproductive justice without the inclusion of environmental and climate justice. How can you build a family with no earth? I mean, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, That's real. Well, <laughs> listen, I can tell y'all are ready to jump into it. So this is wonderful. I'm not going to have to pull no strings for our amazing listeners to hear you. Actually, I want to come start with you, Bria. I want to start with our first question so folks can get to know you. Um, Who is the community you fight for? That's such a big question. I mean, I fight for Black liberation very broadly, but um, also I would say my focus is on Black women, Black girls, and marginalized genders. So that includes gender nonconforming, trans folks, femmes, um, everything within that kind of category. I would say I begin there, but um, the broader focus is Black liberation. Mm. Sheila, same question for you. Who is the community you fight for? I think in general, marginalized communities, um, and it includes each of the communities that Bria has mentioned, but my specific work um, throughout my career has been focused on what we now call frontline communities, and those are communities that are at the front line of, you know, pollution, of uh, poverty and racism, structural racism, and now climate impacts, and also at at uh, risk of being displaced from climate action sometimes from even well-meaning climate action by government. So uh, those are the communities I've spent my career fighting for in various ways. And those are often, you know, African-American, Latino, um, you know, Native American um, and low-income working class folks, predominantly, but not exclusively. Actually, Drew, before you answer that question, Sheila, why is that part, that last part important? I think it's important to recognize that although uh, certain phenomena like climate change affect all of us, you know, uh, threaten the earth, that in fact there are some people in some historically marginalized, historically, um, you know, really colonized, one might say, groups that suffer the most. And often we achieve environmental protection or climate gains sometimes on the back of these communities, not always intentionally, but because we don't pay attention to equity and justice. So, Gerald, same question for you. Who is the community you fight for? The, uh, I mean, I would echo what, what Sheila said. I, I would only expand it a little bit uh, to, to suggest that, that, that this is a global struggle. Like, most of our work is, is domestic, uh, and, you know, I'm a... I'm a American lawyer, right? Um, so a lot of my work is dom- domestic, but I've made connections with, especially with indigenous groups internationally, um, who are are in the in the you know hip deep in this struggle. Um, uh, and and the, the the big thing, and I, I want to underline a point Sheila made 
right? The big thing is to is to for policymakers to understand that communities have uh, uh, both uh, claims and claims as communities, right? So the you know the the Alaska natives who were are being displaced because of of uh, uh, loss of territory, right? It's not individual members of that community who are being injured. It's the entire community. And the response has to respond to that entire community. There was a case in, in Corpus Christi where a very old um, uh, free black community in, in Corpus was going to be displaced by building a new bridge. Uh, and uh, I think Texas Rural Legal Assistance there brought a case on behalf of the entire community. And so when they, rather relocating individual landowners, they had to essentially relocate the whole community and keep the community intact. I think that's going to be an issue that we're going to see, um, you know, brought up. It's going to be difficult for American legal systems to really digest that because they really are allergic to it almost. Uh, but, but it's critical and it's, we've got to have it uh, in, in, when we think about the communities we represent, it's important to think about it as communities. Hmm. So we're going to come in to this conversation about the Supreme Court and particularly about what's happening now uh, in this moment in time. Um, but before I get to that, you both talked about the communities you're fighting for. Um, you know, for me, I'm usually one of those folks in the streets doing street heat, as well as this podcast that our listeners are listening to right now. But I believe in demonstration, but I also believe that demonstration without litigation leads to frustration. That, and also demonstration without legislation also leads to frustration. That if you don't have legislation or litigation as a part of your plan, that no matter how much you're out there demonstrating, you're not going to succeed. But I also believe in real talk. So I'm going to start with you here, Bria. Do you trust this system? Same, I'm, I'm asking you all the same question. But I know, I know I'm coming in heavy <laughs> off the top. But please, do you do trust, this, trust system? this system? <laughs> Sorry. Um, <laughs> I want to say hell no, but I don't know if we can curse on here. You Absolutely can. It's a podcast. Not. You can definitely curse on it. You can curse. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely not. Listen, um, I I, st- I started off, I think, in my bio, as you read, abolition, right? So <laughs> when we're thinking about reproductive justice and also taking an abolitionist lens to it, we've already said that these systems are insufficient. We've already said that we don't trust these systems because they were created and designed by people we do not trust. We've already named that these are oppressive systems that go against self-determination and bodily autonomy. So my answer is absolutely not. I do not. <laughs> hmm. So before I ask Sheila and Joe that question, I'm asking you the same question. Bria, would you want to trust the system if you could? Would you want no. to? <laughs> what I, so when you say system, I'm going to throw the question back on you. Which yeah. system are you talking about? Let, let's, let's get clear. <laughs> yeah, this, 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 this project, this, this, this thing called America, this thing called America democracy, um, mm. would you want to trust it at all? No, because again, going back to reproductive justice, how can I trust a system that was built on not just enslavement, 
but the enslaved reproductive practices of Black women and men, right? So how do we trust the system that began with something that violent and that dehumanizing? Absolutely not. Well, I want to tell you all, and I'm sure I want you to answer the same question. Thank you all. This is not an easy question. And I think for those who think it's an easy answer, then you're not really, it's, it is much more complicated. Um, I was very fortunate myself to be mentored by the amazing uh, Dr. Dorothy Irene Height. And she would, you know, challenge us with these types of questions to kind of get, get it. We would, it wouldn't be easy. And sometimes, you know, not, even as I look back, I understand. But Gerald, do you trust this system? You know, when, when you become a lawyer, one of the things that you commit to is, um, is to using the processes for change that are available and apparent. You made a point earlier, though, that I think is really critical, which is um, you know, there are many ways to change laws, and everybody's familiar with the formal ways, you know, legislation, administrative decisions, uh, 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 legal opinions, decisions by the Supreme Court and lower courts, but the the people on the street, so long as it reflects real organization, is also a powerful motive for change. And that's where a lot of my faith resides. The, the, the capacity for people to continue to organize uh, and demand uh, uh, changes. Um, the work I'm doing right now um, is on how social movements produce legal change. And so I think there's a re relationship between the formal system of, of change that Sheila was talking about that we as lawyers are part of and the informal ways in which change happens. I think the environmental justice movement is an example of a movement that has actually produced formal legal changes fit, you know, slowly and fits and starts, you know, but you know, what's amazing to me is, you know, when Sheila and I first started doing environmental justice, you know, years and years and years ago, the idea of the president of the United States saying the words environmental justice would have been the farthest thing from our imagination. And the fact that we've now had two executive orders and there's this full government approach to it suggests that movements can produce change but they've got to be sustained and it's got to be organized. Well, Bree, I, I see you moving your head there, Bree. Did you want to say anything? I don't know if you were. Uh, um, no, I think I, I think I agree. Um, for me, and at least in my work, especially as an organizer, I don't think any of that requires like a, like a trust in, in the system. So I think if I were going to use the term trust, I have trust in, my communities. I have trust in, you know, the Black feminist movement, the abolitionist movement, the reproductive justice movement, but I cannot put my trust in what we are essentially up against. And I think if I'm going to go back to one of the most wonderful scholars of all time, her name is June Jordan, Brooklyn's finest. She was very clear about knowing who your enemy is and not waving in that, right? And so with the work that I do, I'm very clear that my enemy is the state 
And although there are things that the state can do to alleviate the suffering of my people on some smaller scales, which is some certain policy changes that we engage in, I still understand the state as my enemy. And that's very clear to me. And I think that's important because as organizers, then that helps us get tactical and that helps us decide what concessions we are absolutely unwilling to make because we know who our enemy is. And I think that I am, I'm there because had we been here 50 years ago, we wouldn't have had so much faith in the Supreme Court to uphold Roe anyway, right? And so I'm in that camp of folks who always knew that Roe was never enough. And so I can't give trust, if that makes sense. All all these are... I I, I would like to to suggest, you know, the, the work that Sheila's doing right now on cities and looking at other places where power can be mobilized uh, is going to be cr- a critical inquiry, right? Because, you know, you know to, to Bria's point, a lot of us put trust or faith in the federal government uh, and the courts to do some of the work that needed to get done. And what, what Sheila's current work is doing is to illustrate that, in fact, it's, it, it, we've got to be active and engaged at all levels and not think that the power only flows from the top mm-hmm. down, that the power flows from the bottom up. And we need to, to start, especially in the law, analyzing how that, how that works and how we might, might mobilize it. I hope I haven't, you know, uh, 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 I hope I accurately characterized your work, Sheila. <laughs> Very impressively, actually, and better than I could. No, but I think that's right. I mean, power should be decentralized. I think we've put way too much faith in institutions like the Supreme Court, in Congress, in the presidency. Um, and I think the one thing that a lot of us are focused on, and unfortunately, the Trump years opened people's minds about our system, right? Uh, and um, it, it, not only the limits, right, and the fragility of even our formal system of democracy, whatever you think of it, but of power in general, right? How it's exercised, where it lies, and where it can be mobilized. So I've been focused from working with and launching something called the Global Parliament of Mayors, working with mayors from all over the world, including Africa and other places on, on climate migration, on on, uh, on uh, climate issues, but also with cities here in the U.S. Uh, to, um, and when I say cities, I don't mean just the formal government, but I mean communities within cities and all of the power that local governments and that the places where we live every day, right? The things we care most about that affect our daily life that aren't over there in Washington or even in the state capitol, but the decisions that are made every day about our quality of life and how we shape communities, a lot of those are made at the local level, right? And we saw that with policing, obviously, but so many, so many other decisions. So that's the work I've been doing. And that's work I learned from doing environmental justice for so long, from my frustration, trying to get the government to enforce civil rights acts, bringing litigation in federal court. I mean, Gerald was along with working with the EPA, working with agencies, even when we had good heads of those agencies, the frustration of not being able to move the ball along um, really caused me to look at where I think power can best be leveraged, and that's on the ground. So I'm going to ask you all the same question because the, the court actually did a lot before they went away on summer break. They did a lot. But I want to kind of pick up what Sheila just said. Are we surprised that the court has come to this point? I mean, I know for me, I've, I was – 
uh, many years ago, it seemed like many years ago, when I was warning, we had a campaign called the Supreme Justice Campaign, which we were telling people about uh, Justice uh, Roberts and or the possibility of a Justice Roberts court, actually. And we were trying to educate the community then about these types of disasters and this the, the framework of this. So are we surprised that we're here now? Is it do we as a movement have some kind of responsibility also to say that we should have we were a little bit asleep at the wheel in some cases as a movement? We should have been talking about this much more um, literally 10, 15 years ago. This shouldn't. Are we are we surprised? Were we caught off guard? I guess that's just a, I know it's a general media's reaction to Sheila's thing on West Virginia versus e- EPA. But I'm just wondering, how do we get to this point? How do we how do we seem so flat footed uh, in this? And so, Bri, I see you lean back on that. So I'm going to let you take it on that. No, no, you can't. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um. <laughs> I'm trying to figure out the way that I want to answer this question because my immediate response is very, um, no, there is no surprise. Again, going back to the Dobbs case, no surprise at all. Um, The right has won a 50 year long organizing strategy. And I have to keep pointing that out to people so that they understand that everything we want to see in this world takes that type of dedication not always 50 years, but the way that they were organizing, the different sectors that they organized in, the tactics that they use, all of this, and, and the clarity and what their goal was, right? Been clear from day one. And I think that this goes back to our faith question because a lot of the people on our side who were really not paying attention, they had a little too much faith. And the part of this that this is where everybody always loses me because this is the controversial take that gets people mad. Our first black president had a lot to do with that. Uh, Sometimes we get figureheads that look like us and we get too comfortable and we get a little too faithful and we get a lot like, oh, okay, maybe the level of organizing action that I think we need, we don't need. Right. So there is a lot of feminist scholarship around things that happened after the civil rights movement, like or the way that organizing kind of went down a bit. There's a lot of feminist scholarship around, um, you know, what happens when certain legal advancements are made, how the organizing landscape shifts, and people think that that type of mobilizing and organizing is not needed anymore, right? Feminists specifically and reproductive justice organizers have been sounding this alarm for years and years and years of like, hold on, y'all. Something's going on here. They're stacking the courts. They're attacking our abortion clinics. They're attacking our people. They're doing all of this. And now look at where we are. So no, someone stop by saying no. This is no surprise to me. Hmm. Well, you know, it's uh, I, I, you know, I, I hesitate to say it's complicated because it always sounds like an evasion, right? But but uh, but it, it is, and it's, I'm going to complicate it in a couple of ways. Like I think you're right, uh, and and Bria is exactly right. You know, we 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 should have recognized who our opposition is and recognized that they've been clear. They've been crystal clear about what they intend to do. And, you know, we should have believed that that's what they intended to do. And we should have been organizing and not resting on uh, uh, 
things that we believed were inviolate rights. I mean, the, the, if I can put Dobbs and, and West Virginia together, right, they, they, you might mm. understand them this way. Well, actually, before that, Gerald, real quick, explain Dobbs to our listeners. <laughs> I should let Bree explain Dobbs to our, our listeners. She did re, re, well, reproduction. Basically, um, uh, what what Dobbs did, you know, I could I could dress it up, but what what Dobbs did was to take something that that we had all believed was a fundamental right, and to say. No, that right is subject to the whims of state legislatures. Forget the gerrymandering that has has distorted the way the state legislatures are now, right? That's critical. The idea that you can take something that we had assumed was fundamental and say it's not fundamental. It's up for for grabs. Mm -hmm. That is is everyone who thinks they have a right in one thing or another ought to you know take a step back. However, and I know we're going to talk about the Second Amendment a little bit later, but the almost exact opposite conclusion arose from the New York gun case, where the argument was. Where there is, where we recognize, which, and you need to remember, Heller is a really recent decision, where we recognize an individual right to bear arms. That is now enshrined as a fundamental right that is not subject to state legislation, right? The, the, the contradiction is, is, is intense. The major, the, the major questions doctrine that Sheila uh, was was talking about is also critical because what I think we're going to watch, and we all ought to be alerted to this, is there's going to be a conflict in the conservative movement because you have one side that thinks we want to prevent the administrative state from being able to act. You know, since the since the New Deal, the administrative state has been critical, and then. You have another side that says, no, we want the federal government to be able to enforce certain values. Well, that's going to, and, and they're going to enforce those values through the administrative state. So I think we have a, a conflict that hasn't yet been uh, confronted. And I think that lack of coherence, I'm sorry, Bria, um, is really, really exposes. And that's Sheila talking there. Go ahead, Sheila. Yeah, the power play that we've observed, um, the the power grab at the Supreme Court level, um, and also the power grab that happened under the last administration, um, even in terms of, you know, deploying, you know, National Guard during the Black Lives Matter uh, protest. So Gerald put it so well. <laughs> um, this kind of, on the one hand, you know, you can regulate women's reproductive system, but you can't regulate guns. Um, on the one hand, let's tear down the administrative state, but on the other hand, let's use the administrative state, right, to our ends. Total lack of coherence, but that's not the point. They're not trying to be coherent. I think they're very clear about what it is they want. Right. Um, and 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 they've 
taking a. Um, well, Sheila, what the, Sheila, what do they want? They want to enforce their vision of America on the rest of us. You know, mm-hmm. we haven't even talked about the school prayer cases. I mean, you know, that's it. Um, they want to enforce their vision of America on the rest of us. Um, and that includes uh, not just control over women, but, you know, uh, look at Florida, you know, the don't say gay law, you know, um, it's, it's all around us. Look at Texas, <laughs> um, you know, look at a lot of states where this is happening. Um, notwithstanding the fact that you have these liberal progressive areas in the middle of these red states, right? These blue islands, um, uh, it doesn't matter because of the gerrymandering. So to Bria's point, this has been a long game. This has been a lot, including gerrymandering. And now we're at the point where it's it's now quite baked into the system. And the question is, how do we undo something that is now quite baked in because it's been 50 or 20 or 10 years um, or in the case of the Supreme Court, the, the last few years? Mm. Yeah. Um, before we move on, I just want to just explicitly name that Dobbs was a case coming out of Mississippi where they were trying to enforce, I believe it was a 15 week abortion ban that got taken to the Supreme Court. Um, and I also just feel the need to name that for a lot of people, Roe versus Wade did confer the right to abortion. But a lot of folks say that that was based on the constitutional right to privacy. So when we talk about Roe falling, we're not just talking about abortion access. We are talking about. So what does this mean for the right to privacy? And I think that that question has a lot of implications for how far the right is about to go and the fact that their reach is about to be very limitless. And we've already seen that the fall of Roe is impacting people who don't, who have nothing to do with wanting an abortion, right? It's impacting folks who need medication for autoimmune diseases. It's impacting pregnant women who are having complications. It's impacting doctors where they want to even be, right? It's having a lot of different implications. And if the right to privacy is up for grabs, then that to me is right alongside how much of a surveillance state that we are in, right? (laughs) And I think that abolitionists have been sounding these things for a very long time. So some of the stuff that's falling has to fall when they want a militarized police state. And this is why so many of the things we're talking about are so interconnected. Yeah, if I I could could add on a little bit to that. Um, uh, You know, we shouldn't ignore Thomas's concurrence in Dobbs, right? Because there he pulls back the curtain, right? He pulls back the curtain and says, no, this is what's really at stake, right? And, and suddenly you realize when you say all Thomas, those, folks listening. Uh, I'm sorry, Justice Thomas, Justice Clarence mm-hmm. Thomas. Um, yeah. And, you know, he does pull back the curtain on what's at stake. And the fact that you had to have Kavanaugh reaffirm a right to travel, which of course is also nowhere mentioned in the Constitution, and is one of the substantive liberties that is protected by substantive due process, uh, should should cause everybody to take a deep breath, right? Because the the things that we thought were critical to, and I'm going to use a term that you know may make sense to some people, may not, but everything that we thought was essential to our idea of ordered liberty, but mm. is not explicitly mentioned in the Constitution, 
is now potentially up for grabs. That's should everyone, every American should be scared of that. The method of analysis that the courts claims to be using is in fact um, not the kind of analysis that actually reveals uh, something that is inexorable, but in fact reveals how you read history and how you read what we have evolved into as a, a nation. So I mean, I think we should pay particular attention to 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 Justice Thomas Thomas's concurrence uh, because there, you know, it's it's there for everyone to see. And also to your point, to the mode of reasoning. I mean, the court had to go back centuries to find a justification to roll back Roe and to Bria's point about history. I mean, if you go back, then you've revealed what you're trying to do, right? Um, Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. No, no, no. Also, to go back to your point, he didn't, Thomas didn't mention anything about our interracial dating and marriage laws, right? So, and also has a wife who was a part of the insurrection. So it's very clear that this is a Supreme Court that is not just, you know, saying that they're cherry picking which laws they want to uphold. That's too kind. They're being very explicit and clear about what is important to them and what is not for their vision of the world. And they are willing to basically show you all their illegitimacy by doing these things. And let's not forget affirmative action is up next. What's interesting, right, was the way in which history was used in the Kennedy case, or not just history, empirical facts Mm. were used in the Kennedy case and the New York gun case, right? And Dobbs, right? There, that, what, what, what jumps out is, some facts matter, some facts don't, right? And even well, let's, for let's the break historical that, let's break analysis. that down, though. Let's, from people listening today. Even in West Virginia. Yeah. Uh, Gerald, right. yeah. Yeah. Well, I want to break that down for some folks listening because we, we're, we're, we're in it. And I want to just make sure they know that. So after the Supreme Court went on there, quote, unquote, some break, um, that there was cases that were on gun, gun laws. Um, there were cases on indigenous sovereignty. There were cases, obviously, on women's health and uh, reproductive justice. Um, there were cases that were on environmental um, and air uh, regulations. Obviously, that was West Virginia versus EPA, Dobbs versus Jackson, um, Pueblo versus v. Texas, on and on and on. There were a number of cases that came forth. So, but I want to really follow up. So, people, if you're listening, please, this is your summer go back reading to go back and check out all of these cases that took place. You can, you can there's so much to look at. Um, but this is the thing I want to kind of piggyback this next question, because I think that, you know, Bria kind of opened up something that was very, very important for this conversation. And that is particularly for a lot of the young people who listen to uh, this conversation. The one thing that they will say was that why are we, why do we seem so reactive? Um, why do we seem like we are caught flat-footed? And Bria has already said that. No, we, we're not. I said, we, we might have been flat-footed, but the other side clearly was not flat-footed. They had a 50-year strategy. And when I think about that, um, and she mentioned about 
uh, President Obama, and she mentioned that literally during those time frames, no matter who's in these positions of power, we have to keep the gap, the pedal on the gas. Um, and I, I, I think she's, I don't think, I know she's right. Like, I, I, there's no doubt about it. But we, we do that. So I guess I want to start with both you, Sheila and Ger- Gerald, and then Bria, please come in. What is the Pacific challenge we are facing in the wake of these decisions now? So moving forward, in other words, that we're here now, these are in many cases the law of the land, unless, you know, they could be codified, we can get all into how they could be amended or codified or all those different things. But right now, from a legal standpoint, what is the specific challenge we are facing in the wake of these decisions? Sheila, I'll start with you. I think what is our theory of change, right? Um, in light of what's happened. Um, and so we've been talking at bits about that, right? Is our theory of change to do a run around the federal government <laughs> because the agencies are hampered now after West Virginia, because, you know, the court is clearly in a retrenchment mo- mode around not just fundamental rights, but voting rights, um, you know, affirmative action, probably, et cetera. Um, is that our theory of change? Is our, uh, are we going to try to, you know, um, reverse what the right has done, uh, which is a longer, I think, horizon? Um So legally, I think for me, that's the question. Uh, Of course, we can walk and chew gum. We should try to do both. Um, But um, I think that one question is, what do we do in the interim? Because reversing what's being done now is a long horizon. Um, And so that's why I think I'm focused on, you know, the state, local uh, levels um, of government. um, And to some extent, you know, working with networks of folks, not just across the country, but across the world uh, to bring about change. There are other avenues of change, um, including on the streets. I mean, that's a given, I think. But that's got to, you know, that's got to translate into policy and legal changes at the end of the day. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree. There are a couple of things. One is, you know, even you take the new take the gun decision, for example. Um. What that is going to require of us is, and by us, I'm, let me limit that, what that's going to require of the people, lawyers and legal uh, uh, analysts, is to figure out where the um, capacity for uh, social self-protection can still arise in the attempt to limit uh, uh, guns, especially, you know, the uh, uh, regulate the ownership uh, of certain kinds of guns, regulate open carry, uh, uh, all of that that kind of stuff. I, I think there are still places where we can act, um, and I th- I think you know we can actually use the historical uh, technique to uh, to do some of that. And I think I think there 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 are. Um, there are pieces out there that we can we can uh, refer to. I think for climate and for environment, uh, 
You know, I, I, I was speaking to uh, Green Latinos once. They gave me um, uh, at, a, at one of their meetings, you know, and, and I said, look, if you're not doing voter registration, you're not doing environmental work. So that means, you know, we've got to get people, we've got to make, pe- make sure that at least to the extent that we can, our issues are in the public debate and people have to respond to them. People have to respond to them. We have to we have, in those states where where women's reproductive f- freedom is still available. We've got to struggle hard to make sure that we defend it and strengthen it. And what the state I live in Connecticut right now. What the state of Connecticut did is they are essentially going to uh, they they have passed a, a statute that says the state will not cooperate with those states that attempt to prosecute people who come to Connecticut for uh, reproductive uh, services. So, you know, we need to support, we need to act on all those levels. And then, you know, we need to put our thinking caps on and think, okay, what are the arguments? I think one of the important things that, that's, that, that, that environmental lawyers certainly have done, have they been creative? And now's the chance that's the time for us to be creative. To Bria's point earlier, you know, the, the, the right, at least the anti-reproductive uh, freedom uh, movement has been, was motivated and, 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 you know, kind of by, by Roe and worked actively. But, but remember, you know, the civil rights movement didn't just arise like, you know, like mushrooms after spring rain. It started with abolitionists before the Civil War. Right. The, 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 the suffragettes movement, you know, is the is the are the roots of the feminist movement. These are long term movements. And we got it. We have to embrace the 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 roots of our movement. And, and we have to say we have always been struggling for this greater vision of freedom. And these these are setbacks. But we're going to keep struggling because they're part of who we are and they're part of what's defined uh, uh, kind of ordered liberty, democratic liberty. Right. Uh, and, and, and we don't we know we have to reject, reject the idea that these are, you know, modern creations. No, they're not modern creations. Americans have, have been struggling for these issues for hundreds of years now. Even the environment. Now we're refining it, and justice—the justice component of the environment—is is a new gloss on it. But it's always been in there. It's always been in there, and so we need to embrace that. Let me just, as a quick footnote on the legal strategy, we can't forget that we have fifty state constitutions, right? So one of the things that's happened in the wake of Dobbs is that advocates have gone into court under state constitutions. Right. And preserved some of the rights overturned by Dobbs. Now, of course, that's a function of kicking the issue back to states. But all that to say is when you ask legally, notwithstanding the movement and other important strategies we have, you know, um, if you look at the state level and this is partly how Republicans got there. Right. They re-gerrymandered and they elected folks at the state level. They paid attention in a way that we need to do. They paid attention to every level of government. They paid attention to every election, to every strategy. And we put our faith in the guy up at the top, you know, Obama or Clinton, whoever it is, and say, oh, yeah, they're going to take care of it. But 
the lesson here is pay, don't look away. Even when you elect your person, don't look away. Because we looked away and they put in place stuff that is really hard to unwind at this point. But we can, to Gerald's point. And partly it's because we're a United States of America, right? So even when the federal government goes rogue, <laughs> we, have, we have some, you know, some leverage somewhere. And, and, and Reverend, you know, to, 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 to your point, the movements are so critical. You know, when you, when you get in a closed room with politicians and you talk to them and, uh, and the microphones are off, what they will tell you is, look, you've got to create the space for us to look heroic. You know, and that's what movements do. Movements create the space where politicians can look heroic, right? But they're not going to look heroic on their own, by and large, right? They're not going to be heroic on their own, by and large. They're going to be heroic when the people have created the space for them to be heroic. And that's that's on us. That's on us. I mean, that's 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 the challenge for the movements: create that political space for for the kind of change that we want to see happen to actually happen. So we've had a lot of conversation about the current state of of the court. So Bria, give us some parting words for every for everybody. Give us some parting words. Of where do we go from here? In the words of Dr. King, community or chaos. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think in my closing, I just want everybody to know that Dobbs and the abortion bans and restrictions are just one small part of the fight. So yes, abortion on demand at any time, that is what we are saying. And also the larger vision is a reproductive liberation. The larger vision is reproductive justice. And the three pillars of reproductive justice are the right to have a child, the right to not have a child, and the right to parent our children in safe and healthy environments. And so if we were going to look at all three of those pillars, all of them give us different areas of organizing work that needs to be done, right? We need communities of care that support single parents, that support families, that make having a family sustainable and a good thing. We need people supporting abortion access. We also need people to continue to fight against maternal mortality and infant mortality and, you know, Black health in general. So there are so many different avenues in the reproductive justice fight. And I always tell people, if you're interested in organizing, find the one that you care most about, figure out what's happening in your community and figure out what you have the capacity to join and support. Organizing is going to look differently from everyone. Maybe you'll be the best digital organizer and you can help tease out that strategy. Maybe you'll be a great support person to help us understand disability justice and how we need to do that in our organizing strategies. Maybe you'll be the person that goes to the Hill. You know, we all are going to have a different role in this fight, but we need to be very clear about the fact that what is needed goes beyond just mobilizing. Going back to what Kwame Ture used to say, we're really great at mobilizing. We're not always that great at organizing. Mm. And the fight moving forward is going to take long-term, sustained organizing. I'm just going to speak for myself when I say it's going to take abolitionist, Black feminist, internationalist organizing, right? Clear values for what we are fighting for. I think our coalitions fall apart when we just make these small goals. Like we just want to reinstate abortion rights, right? And then we get that and then all our fractions kind of fall apart because (laughs) we didn't think about implications or anything else. So definitely values-based coalitions is going to be really important. Co-constructing power um, and 
like Jim Jordan said, break the law, baby. I don't know if y'all can even air that part, but you're going to have to know when not to comply. And a lot of organizing takes break the law. And I'm going to stop there. I got to yeah, go. Thank you, Bria. And Bria, real quick, how can folks contact you? They want to find you. Yeah, so my email is B-R-E-Y-A-M-O-N-A-Y-E at gmail.com. That's Bria Monet. And I'm on Twitter, The Blackest Layers. Um, no, The Black Layers. And I'm on Instagram, The Blackest Layers. I also run the healing blog, Black Reading to Heal, on Instagram. And you can contact me there. Oh, thank you, Bria. Sheila, so... I thought what Bria said was a great opening to expand upon, I think, something she left off in, and what I would call implementation. So I think we're here because the right had a vision, and they implemented that vision, right? And I think that, you know, she's right that it's not just about climate justice or reproductive, et cetera. It's a what kind of society do we want to live in? What kind of democracy do we want to have? What are the rights that we want to enshrine? And how will we get there? How will we get there? Um, And so I do think that, and I'm so inspired by this generation that she's a part of and that, you know, my kid is a part of, he's about to turn 18. They're fired up. And I do think they have a vision actually. And I think Gerald and I are just foot soldiers in their vision right now, (laughs) you know, because our time has like, we've done our visioning and we've tried and we've succeeded on some levels, but obviously not enough. Um, And so um, it's all about implementation. And I think this next generation has a vision and the vision is fierce and strong. It's abolitionist in part. I think it's radical. Um, And I think that we can achieve it if uh, we can get the coalition together to act um, in a way that will make sure that we implement it uh, at all levels of government. And until then, we're just screaming and shouting. So what would you say then, listening to young people in general and obviously amazing activists like Bria, what would you say to the next generation of environmental justice lawyers? at this point what, what would you what, what would your advice to them but depending on these these scotus hearings and just where we are in the movement yeah no there used to be a time when there were only a handful of us right gerald around the country and what i <laughs> um and now there are more but not nearly enough ref um because i always say to people who want to be environmental justice lawyers is that you have to be a lawyer that is conversant in civil rights, which is a separate body of law, environmental law, which, and now climate, which is a separate, and then local zoning and land use law. Uh, because the problem intersects with so many other issues and laws. And you have to be willing to put, and indigenous rights, I would say, you know, we haven't talked about that enough, but um, you have to be able to be the kind of expert and have that kind of focus where you can problem solve for people and help people to get to the place where I think we all want, which is environmental justice and climate justice that incorporates reproductive justice, housing justice, you know, job and worker justice, a just transition. Those are really complicated issues. And you can't just say, oh, I know civil rights law and we're going to get there. That's not the case. 
or I just know environmental law. So I would say, you know, if you want to be the next generation environmental justice lawyer, um, really, really, really understand what kinds of issues and the complexity of issues that you're going to have to face to help the communities you want to help, number one. Number two, to make the change that you want. And number three, to make that change stick. Because the problem we've had is that we make change at one level, but doesn't stick. So I'll stop there because I'm sure, uh, you know, Gerald has a lot to add to that. I want to make sure I get your contact information. How can folks find you? And also, this if there's something that you want folks to know you're working on, like this kind of like, I didn't, I know I want to make sure I get that out. Things you may want to talk about. Um, so you can just uh, Google Sheila R. Foster and I have a website with contact information. You can find me on Twitter at Sheila R. Foster. Um, so I'm pretty easy to find. Um, so right now what I'm working on is uh, I'm on the panel, on the New York City Mayor's panel on climate change in New York City, trying to create a framework for climate justice and equity uh, and how to do that uh, in a major city. Um, uh, and so uh, I'm also, I have a book coming out for MIT Press called Co-Cities. Um, I've been working for many, many years, about a decade now, probably more, thinking about a new framework for how we think about developing sustainable communities with justice at the center. And have been working in cities all over the world, including the U.S., Baton Rouge, Harlem, uh, um, other cities um, here um, on projects that involve co-producing and co-creating the solutions to problems, uh, not just with local governments and communities, but with a lot of other different you know, nonprofits, community-based organizations, and sometimes the private sector um, to create innovative solutions that are lasting and that stick and that put community that give communities power and governance over the goods that they need, whether it be internet or solar power or whatever. Um, so that book is coming out from MIT Press. You can find it all on my website, SheilaRFoster.com. I love it. I mean, I, you know, I, I'm I'm coming from the hip hop world, so I'm gonna I'm gonna repeat that one more time. SheilaRFoster.com. So if they missed it, they got it on the remix. Oh man, thank you so much. Well, Gerald, where do we go from here? Community chaos after all these SCOTUS hearings. I I think you know the the thing, and and I'm I'm sure Sheila would would agree with this. That the thing that environmental justice advocates did right at the beginning was to say, listen to the communities. So they're going to tell you what, what qualifies as an environmental justice issue. The, the environmental lawyers then have to listen to them, right? Because the leadership is going to come from the people who are actually experiencing this. And that's part of where the organizing has to come from. And one of the things that, that uh, Sheila has done extremely well, and it's really important, is to recognize that power infuses all of these relationships and you have to have a you have to be able to construct a power map where is power in any particular situation and how do you mobilize and organize to access that power so first is listen to communities and you know the when 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 I talk to to young people I recognize that that's what they're doing the other thing is that, that when you do an environmental justice, it's going to come up in a variety of ways. Let's say, you know, the, the bus rider strike in L.A. was a kind of environmental justice because public transportation is, a, is, a, is a both an environmental and a justice issue. Clean energy, if, clean energy has got to be accomplished 
by also uh, achieving energy justice. And so energy justice is part of that. So let's say you're an energy lawyer or an energy activist. Justice has to infuse what you do. Let's say you're a transportation activist. Justice has to infuse what you do. Let's say you're, you're, you know, uh, an, an environmentalist. You have to ask what are the 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 uh, implications for the, the communities I care about of one particular ta- uh, path or another, and and justice has to inform each one of those inquiries. So you know, I I agree with Sheila. Listen to the people who are doing the work, the people who are, who are in the communities, and then see take the skills that you have, and say how do I use them to 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 bring heft or life or or voice to those communities. That's 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 the the approach um, I've tried to take. I mean, back when 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 we were first you know, doing this 100 years ago in the Clinton administration, um, you know, we invited environmental justice groups into the Justice Department. Say, talk to me about environmental justice, because you know you learn things that environmental lawyers would not have uh, would not have occurred to environmental lawyers to include in the, in the justice uh, context. So I would say, you know, listen to the communities, get involved in your communities. Uh, don't always try to lead. <laughs> Be supportive uh, and, and recognize that, that you know, with, within any group, there's going to be a range of skills. How do we maximize those skills in that group? That's what I would say. Um, and what people can, can contact me through the, uh, the Yale Center for Environmental Justice, which I'm putting together and building out. Uh, we have a website um, and you can reach me through, um, you know, g- gerald.torres at yale.edu is my, my uh, um, you know, university email. Um, but uh, the Yale Center for Environmental Justice would be one way to do it. And we we're on various social media platforms. So you can find us on that, but you know, I actually agree with, with Sheila, uh, you know, in, in, when we were kind of talking off uh, uh, b- before we were back on the air, uh, you know, I, I think, in fact, people are motivated by what's happening uh, rather than being defeated. You know, it's, these are blows. There's no question. These are blows. Right. But but one of the things that 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 has uh, exemplified the movements of which we are a part historically has been resilience and we're going to be resilient. Well, I think Joe, you put a good pin there and a good bow on this conversation, which we must continue, but I want to thank you, Joe, definitely you, Sheila and Bria for all being on the coolest show. And we're going to push on. We definitely going to push on all power to the people. Thank you all so much. Like what you heard on this episode? Make sure you subscribe to the podcast. Follow us at Think 100 Climate and at Hip Hop Caucus on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Visit thecoolestshow.com where you can take action for climate justice right now. You can also learn more about this podcast and donate to Think 100%, which is a non-profit project. Thank you for listening and all power to repeat. It's the coolest show you know. It's the coolest show you know.